And welcome to Weird Era, the podcast where we ask the right questions. I am very excited to be joined today on the pod by the legend herself, Otessa Mushveg. Otessa is a fiction writer from New England. Eileen, her first novel, was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Man Booker Prize and won the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction. My Year of Rest and Relaxation, Death in Her Hands, and Lapfona, her next three novels, were New York Times bestsellers. She's also the author of the short story collection Homesick for Another World and a novella, McGlue. She lives in Southern California. Hi, Otessa. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. So I'm not going to lie, uh, I spent a decent amount of time kind of wondering how I wanted to structure this interview. I definitely want to talk about Lapvona, which is freshly released in paperback as of June 20th. So first of all, congrats on a full year of Lapvona. Um, we'll also touch on some of your other books. Um, really, though, I want to get to the root of you today. Um, and as much as I'm coming into this recording as an interviewer, I also can't escape the fact that I am a Montreal bookseller by trade. Your books are some of the best consistent sellers among customers with wide and varying tastes. Um, readers who might enjoy mainstream texts are attracted to your work, as are more underground, quote, literary readers. There's a united front of support for you from both of these types. Why do you think that is? I mean, it makes, it kind of makes sense. I, I think of my work as sort of straddling those two spheres of readerships, mm. um, the readership of like wanting to discover something strange that nobody else knows and sort of getting in on something that to, you know, other people might seem inscrutable. Like, I guess that's like one <laughs> One extreme, and then the other extreme is, like, people who just like whatever anyone says is good. I've just, like, I, I'm not writing for either category, per se. And, mm -hmm. um, but I also, you know, I think of myself as an artist, and I want my work to be entertaining. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I don't want it to be slow and arduous and boring um, or require um, more than... Well, yeah, you have to be literate unless you're lit uh, listening to the audiobook, but um, just sort of an openness from the reader, a willingness to go there. Uh, I, I'm like an educated person with a really um, bad memory. <laughs> so like any kind of uh, like sophisticated literary references that my work might be making, like I have completely forgotten what the hell I was thinking at the time. <laughs> so you don't have to be, you know, an English major to appreciate uh, one of my short stories, for example. Um, mm -hmm. I think I'm just kind of writing for people who, uh, people who are willing to read, <laughs> I guess. There is this common thread that comes up a lot in, in interviews with you where you talk about how you write from a more unconscious or maybe subconscious place. Um, people are really fast to unpack your work in academic or literary ways, and it doesn't always seem to come into play for you as you write necessarily. Um, and, you know, I mean this because it does sound like 
you write what you want to write and you allow space for readers to come to their own conclusions about the depth of the work itself, maybe. What is it about your brand of storytelling that allows you the space to not overthink? I guess the space has been available the whole time. I just kind of discovered it and moved in. Yeah, it's true. I, I, I mean, I am aware of how much I rely on the subconscious as an element of the imagination and the intelligence and, you know, provides momentum um, and inspiration in a million different ways. Um, and I talk about that a lot. And maybe I just talk about it more than other writers. Like I know that other writers <laughs> have, you know, very profound subconscious thoughts and feelings and persuasions and whatever. I, I sort of depend on my lack of awareness of my uh, awareness, if that makes any sense. Because if I'm too uptight, which I am in like every other category of my life, then mm. um, I might not pick up on or hear something that my brain is telling me to write because um, I'm, you know, like everyone else, constantly editing my thoughts. So I don't really use my thoughts as much as I do in, uh, let's say, this conversation when I'm writing. Your writing is very sensory and distinct to me. I, I can categorize it. Latvona is sight, it's Ina's eyes and Marek's shifting views. Rest and relaxation is smell, it's defecating in an art gallery and living in an increasingly disgusting apartment. Death in her hands is hearing, it's internal, it evokes this kind of deafening silence. And this, again, is just what I project onto your works. I'm curious what distinguishes your books for you. Hmm. Um, I think what distinguishes them... Hmm... It's probably just, you know, where I was living and what was going on in my life at the time I was writing and then editing them. Um, because they really are much more uh, illustrative than my memory um, in a million ways. I guess I, I think of my books in several ways. Like one is I think of the cover of the book. <laughs> like if you talk <laughs> about my year of rest and relaxation, like I see that painting and the right. pink font on the title and I'm like, it's a thing, you know, it's a thing. And, um, and then in another way, like it's a time in my life. Mm -hmm. It's part of the, um, the trip I'm taking in life and as a, uh, fiction writer, it was one step on the way to wherever I am right now. And then I guess mm -hmm. the third is like um, the protagonist, you know, whoever is the, you know, the, the character that I feel most, uh, I don't know, enchanted by, you know, the, the person mm -hmm. that, I that, that I couldn't forget or couldn't put down. And that's why I had to keep writing um, because I somehow cared or was invested in that person's story. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a lot of things. But I think, yeah, number one is, you know, how crazy was I when I was working on it? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> and then sometimes I try to compare the feeling that I remember um, 
about the impetus for writing a book and like what the book actually turned into. And that's always interesting. And I, and it's also something that I think, you know, so far your answers have been amazing. Um, I mean, your questions have been amazing. Maybe your answers have been too, but I just haven't heard them yet. Um, your questions are really good, but one thing that I think is confusing and I've never thought to ask anyone really, it's like, how, how is the thing that we know different from the thing that like you wanted to write, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess you could say that that's a question I would ask anyone who like produces things, um, based on a creative impulse. So, um, I mean, so far I'm like way, I'm, I'm way, um, more pleased with the results of my work than the, the, the working that it required. Um, cause I am. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I mean the work itself, I like, I try to be very organized and, you know, I make a lot of notes. Most of my notes for my books are like me telling myself how to work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> focus first on, uh, you know, the exposition. Don't try mm. to figure out the rest of the book. I mean, these are like notes I'm taking myself or like, I'll ask myself, like, why is it important? Um, you know, why, or why, like, why am I so hung up on this one move in the story or why this or explain this. Anyway, um, I try to be organized about how I write, um, and revise, but inevitably, you know, it's a big old mess and feels disastrous a lot of the time. Um, but that's not how I think of the book, you know, process right. and, right. and product or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And then there, there are books that I forget that I've written, like, um, <laughs> I'm always forgetting death in her hands. It's it, it was a quiet book that sort of creeped mm-hmm. creeped away from me after I first uh, after I wrote a first draft, and then it took me years to pick it back up. Um, and there's something about that book that I think breaks my heart in a way that my other books don't. Like there's something quiet and really sad about it that I don't think I've been able to look at since. Um, and so I, yeah, I guess I just kind of willfully put it away. Also, it came out during the like lockdown (laughs) of the pandemic. So it kind of feels like it never happened. There's a quote from your interview with Carmen Maria Machado, uh, that was published last year where on rest and relaxation, you say, quote, when my older sister read it, she said, this should come with a warning label on it. Maybe it should, because guys, this is a satire. This is not real. I'm now thinking, you know, through the lens of the young readership that Rest and Relaxation has acquired over the years or over the past year, maybe. Do you think an understanding of satire is inherently a reflection of maturity? Yeah, I think inherently it might be. But I also think that it's a mode that we learn And, you know, I'm from New England. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, you know, my parents aren't from New England, but like I went to school, like I grew up, there was a neighborhood, I had friends. So um, I am 
very comfortable with sarcasm. Um, I'm also at the same time like very naive and I kind of just believe whatever <laughs> anyone says. So, um, you know, I have had the experience of being like, oh my God, oh, you're kidding, like a lot. <laughs> and um, I do think that, you know, Satire is an element in the book. I don't remember the context exactly of what I was talking to uh, Carmen Maria Machado about. Maybe it, maybe I was thinking more about the um, pharmaceutical industry and mm. over-prescription of um, medication, which I think, you know, at the time I was writing was maybe a bigger issue um, right. than it is now. I mean, we've had the, uh, opiate uh, epidemic. I mean, that continues, but there has been some, um, positive change, I guess, in mm-hmm. the overprescription of controlled substances. So <sighs> there's that, but I wasn't, I, I mean, I wasn't conceiving of the entire book as satire. Um, mm. It was also something that I like felt was a space that I could say things that I felt or could imagine feeling um, that I couldn't really find a better context for. Like I wanted to talk about how disgusted I was with capitalism. I didn't know that at the time. I thought I just hated everything. (laughs) (laughs) Or like... You know, I wanted a place to put my completely self-indulgent depression. Again, I didn't know that at the time, um, but I didn't have many friends who wanted to hear it. (laughs) Um, Or I was too arrogant to discuss it openly with my friends and family. Um, So, yeah, it's satirical, but I also think that it's really true in a lot of ways. Like, there was, like, I tried to be as emotionally honest as I could. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for these, um, you know, younger people who are coming to my work through my year of rest and relaxation, um, I really appreciate the sincerity that they share with Mm -hmm. me when they come to an event and they're like, this is a book that got me into reading. I'm like, oh my God. My, my work here is done, you know? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Um, but then I sometimes worry about how being young, we look for people who share our suffering. And those are not necessarily the people who should be our heroes. Um, not necessarily, but most of the time. Um, right. I mean, I'm thinking about like Kurt Cobain, Okay. Not that yeah. I'm, not that I imagine myself to be as important as Kurt Cobain, <laughs> but like when I was a young person, I I felt like what he was doing creatively, um, both justified and like gave voice to something that I thought I was the only one feeling. Of course, and so he became like an emblem, a hero. Um, and, um, and, and like an even bigger enigma when he passed away Mm -hmm. because I was like, 
you know, in some ways he was forging a path for my own creativity or like the idea that I might have a life that could be meaningful. Uh, but should I fashion my life after him? Um, no. Probably not. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess, I guess there's, there, there's like, there's a little bit of caution that I want to impart on the young readers who are like, you've described my life, you know? Right, right. Um, I'm like, don't try what she's done. It doesn't work, you know? <laughs> this is not you, a model for yeah. living. Right. And neither am I. I'm not really a model for living either. <laughs> I've, um, yeah, no. Although I did quit smoking. That's like, I, that's like the only thing I want to talk about. <laughs> oh, good for I, you. I, I haven't gotten there yet. But how long has it been for you? Oh, six and a half entire months. <laughs> good. Congrats. That's really, really good. Because I'm still a smoker and quitting is fucked, Otessa. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's hard to quit anything or anyone. I've, it took me, I mean, I'm 42. I smoked mm. my first cigarette when I was like nine Right. So it's been a long love affair. Um, a long journey. Yeah. But it can be done. I mean, I've seen other people do it, so I'm hopeful. Here, this is kind of a funny uh, next question, but would you consider yourself impulsive? Yes, sometimes. And then sometimes I think I should be more impulsive. But <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'm, I th I think I'm pretty impulsive. But I'm also very obsessed with uh, self-control, um, mm. which might surprise some people who are very close to me. But um, <laughs> I, yeah, I know I have like I, I I've got that cool combo of being like someone who feels out of control and also someone who feels a need to control everything. Um, yeah. So then I would also ask, um, because I think inherently a lot of the characters in your novels are impulsive, um, is writing that and writing those characters in that way a bomb? Is that a method for you to indulge in impulsiveness that you might not in real world? I would be surprised if it really was because writing takes so much self-control. Um, mm. I mean, fashioning a character, I mean, a writer has to make so many decisions along the way. And they're, yeah. they're you know, as much as I rely on, I guess what you could call like instinct, it isn't like impulsivity has a negative <laughs> vibe to me because... <laughs> Um, it's sort of like things that are impulsive are things that are sudden, um, detached from consequences, mm. not intelligent or meaningful maybe, or, or just reverse all of those words and they're, and an impulse can be that too. But for me, it feels 
slightly negative and I wouldn't trust um, a negative impulse um, in a writing project that I've committed to. So I both kind of like, I try to do a lot of freehand, like freestyling, you know, it's like messy uh, writing, but um, to get things moving or to find something unexpected. But the final book is something that's been very, very carefully considered. Mm. Um, And at the same time, considered and revised and edited and scrutinized so that the reading of that writing feels natural and spontaneous. Mm. And so, you know, it's hard, it's hard to do. It's not an easy impulse. This is a question that I love to ask authors kind of selfishly. I think it mostly stems just from my experience as a genre reader and a lover of series. This question being, would you say that your books exist in one shared universe? Is this the Moshfeg cinematic universe? Huh. Universe or cinematic universe? Those are different for me. That's true. That's true. And we're going to talk about that later. Let's talk universe right now. Okay. Um, yeah, I think so. I think that they happen um, in very specific places, but the universe is probably universal. The time and place can change. Before I started writing Homesick for Another World, mm-hmm. which would be like ending, the, like the first period of my life as a writer which, which sort of ended with McGlue, that kind of felt like a different universe. And then when I mm. started um, the short stories that would go into the collection, Homesick, I, I knew I was in a new universe. And I think ever, ever since then, I've kind of been there. A lot of your characters deal with this kind of perceived loss of innocence. Um, But at the same time, I'm not really sure if they were ever innocent to begin with. Uh, The end of Latvona illustrates this in the best way for me, I would say. Um, Merrick is a child, but the world has always been so cruel to him that the time and place that he exists in also does not lend itself to generosity, maybe. Um, We want him to retain his innocence as readers. And in Latvona's closing pages, without spoiling too much... I think a lot of readers want to believe that final action is that loss of innocence. Um, Do you think this is distinctive to Merrick, or do you think the majority of your characters have this loss projected onto them? Hmm. I had never thought to ask myself that question. I sort of design a character um, around, I don't want to say a, a problem, but like all of my characters... I, I have a judgment. I'm like, here's what they're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. Here, here's where they're misperceiving or um, here's what's going to destroy them. And then, <laughs> um, you know, that, that's like the foundation for understanding someone's plight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely do think of like my characters as having a plight and I kind of think of the novel as something that's offering to either save them or help them destroy themselves Mm. so I think 
with Marek, he is so confused for the entire book. And so confused about especially what love is. Mm. And I think what, what I wanted to explore in the ending was sort of how love doesn't make you feel or make you do just one kind of thing. I try not to psychoanalyze my characters too much, you know, because then then they can get kind of predictable. In your eyes, maybe another question would be, are any of them innocent to begin with? Oh, I think like everyone is innocent. <laughs> no, literally. Like I don't really blame <laughs> anyone for doing anything naughty which is not which is kind of fucked up of me I guess (laughs) I mean also considering the novels that you write and the characters that you write they're you know famously very morally gray morally questionable characters that's why I wanted to ask that question specifically through Marek um, but I think it can be applied to a lot of the other characters that you've crafted yeah And that's the complete opposite answer of what I was expecting from you. So you keep me on my toes, Otessa. I just don't have a fixed answer for anything. Like my my (laughs) answers are always shifting. So yeah, I I keep myself on my toes. I mean, it's a weird thing to not really know what you think because constantly kind of trying everything else on. Um, I mean, I have really strong opinions about a couple of things in life. And Mm -hmm. otherwise, I feel... Like, it's all just so mysterious and ever-shifting that I'm kind of happy to just watch it swirl Mm. and capture it when I can um, in fiction. Would you ever write a novel with a happy ending? I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't, like, I'm not quite sure Lapvona doesn't have a happy ending. I don't think that it's as unhappy... I mean, for Marek, he is doing the right thing for once. So, I mean, I like the, I like the mystery of it. Mm-hmm. Um, my dog is now scratching at the door, which means I should shut up and switch gears <laughs> before I say something <laughs> horrible. Okay. Um, yeah, I thought about happy books. Um I just don't really trust that happiness is as interesting as other things. I mean, I don't know anyone who's happy. And I feel like when the people I know are happy, it's because they've like, they think they've just discovered something that nobody else has ever thought of before. And it's like going to solve everybody's problem. And it can be very annoying And then inevitably, like, that fails them too. And they remember that, um, you know, they're but a humble freak like everybody else roaming the planet. Um, And they need to create the next delusion. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think the pursuit of happiness is wonderful. Um, I'm just not sure that having an easy time getting there Mm. makes a good story 
you know? Mm-hmm. I'd rather watch someone stumble and struggle and figure it out or not. You had an interview with Leah Greenblatt for Entertainment Weekly last year. At the end of the interview, she says, it doesn't sound like you really got a chance to be bored in the pandemic, to which you responded, I wasn't bored. I have too much anxiety to be bored. Which is worse, anxiety or boredom? Mm, anxiety. Mm. I, I mean, boredom, how can you be bored? I mean, I just... I mean, unless you're on a plane, you know, <laughs> like I was just on a plane for like 15 hours. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, this could be boring for me <laughs> if I didn't have this much anxiety. Um, but I, I just yeah, like if I had if, if God was offering me anxiety or boredom, I just pick boredom because it's a very easy thing to solve. Maybe but mm-hmm. I'm being naive, but like and I, I haven't. I haven't figured out the anxiety question yet. Like, what's it good for, really? Your books lately, they they really have gained their own kind of social media presence. Um, again, like I said at the beginning of the interview, I am a bookseller, um, and I don't really have to do anything to sell copies of your books anymore, um, which is not to say there's a massive change in the last couple of years, but... I don't need to hand sell Otessa Meshveg anymore. Um, the kids already know because of the advent of book talk and bookstagram. Is it every author's intention for their books to gain a life of their own in this way? Or do you feel as though you have to adjust your grip on the ownership of these novels when they gain that kind of traction? Sorry, I want to answer your question. I just got really distracted. When the, in, in the pause you just took, I looked at my email. Someone asked me to write something about Cormac McCarthy, and then I Googled him and saw that he died today. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. A few that. hours ago. That's interesting. He actually just published a book called The Passenger, which I haven't read, which was mm-hmm. the working title of a novel that I have abandoned in the last year. I didn't mm. know he was writing a book called The Passenger, obviously. Right, Um, right. So sorry, I was just a little distracted and failed to focus on your question. Can you repeat it? Absolutely. And I almost think it's an interesting lens to look at the question through. Um, I was asking, is it every author's intention for their books to gain a life of their own? Or do you feel like you have to adjust your grip on the ownership of the novel when they get to this certain point? Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like when the book is done, it's not mine anymore. Mm. It, it, it's mine while I'm... It's kind of like baking <laughs> or like cooking something. Like once it's served, you can't take it back. So you have to detach. Um you know, and, but while it's going on, um, I, I, I am responsible to a degree. Um, but, you know, I didn't create uh, celery. So <laughs> you can't blame me for if you don't like <laughs> celery. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just don't order the celery soup. I don't, I mean, I don't really try to have a grip on it once it's mm-hmm. done. I do, however, take, take things 
idiotically personally when people mishandle it, you know? Like it will become the lens through which uh, I will see humanity. Like if somebody grossly misunderstands something that I've written, I love to just embrace full on the idea that nobody understands, you know? Um, that's just like an, an immediate thing that I do uh, to protect myself from mm, the truth. <laughs> the truth <laughs> of how other people think and feel. <laughs> it's very grunge um, <laughs> of you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I am, I, I, I've, in a lot of ways, I am a child of grunge. Mm-hmm. Um, I've caught on to that. Yeah. Not, not, I mean, uh, uh, there are other things thrown in the soup, <laughs> but, um, that was kind of when I discovered myself and my creativity was that era. You once said when your teacher is a monster, but is a great teacher, it's very confusing. If it's your destiny to learn something, you may have to sacrifice a lot to learn it. In context, you were talking about your training um, with classical music in your youth. I do imagine this can also be applied to the art of writing. But I'm curious, uh, when is the sacrifice worth it? I think the sacrifice is worth it if you know that the person you're um, looking to has what you want um, and there's no other way to get it. I mean, I think that's just like in, in the simplest terms. Mm. It's worth the sacrifice if it's the only chance um, you're going to get it. And it's what you want. If Joe Schmo was like your absolute favorite flutist in the world, and he was going to play in a town, but it required that, you know, you took a taxi to the bus station and then a bus to the train and then caught a shuttle and then you had to walk 17 miles you're never going to get a chance to see him perform live again Mm. how bad do you want to have that experience before you die it might impact the rest of your life don't be lazy just because your feet are gonna hurt no, that's how I feel. And if you decide not to go, you didn't really want to. So don't say that life isn't fair. Just because something was, wasn't immediate and easy. Life isn't fair for anyone. But yeah, if you have the opportunity, don't be shy. And also, you know, recognize when you're being prompted by a charlatan who knows how to manipulate you like a lot of teachers are still trying to figure it out Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to writing yeah um and it's very hard to discern a charlatan if they're a good charlatan you know right and in which case that charlatan probably has something to teach you too just don't you know don't pay too much (laughs) i would also ask um do you think your relationship 
with uh, mentorship has changed now that you can be perceived as a mentor yourself? Yeah, it has. I kind of want nothing to do with it, to be honest. Hmm. I think it's, um, I don't think I'm a good mentor. I think that um, I would tend to give advice and have expectations that no human being could ever follow. Um, I think I would probably make people so afraid of themselves, <laughs> knowing that that's what you have to do. You know, my instinct toward ambitious people is like, I always just want to tell them to go for it. But right. I also have a thing where I'm like, annoyed when people aren't getting it quick enough. So I'll just want to tell them the answer. Mm, that right. indicates to me that I'm not a great teacher. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, and it also indicates to me that like, I got really lucky with the teachers that I had. But I mean, you know, nothing's permanent. My um, Vedic astrologer said that I might teach one day. I'm not ruling it out. I love visiting schools. I, I, I love kind of like appearing oh, and disappearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's almost like when you're, what, like when your friend has a baby and you can love that baby yeah. and then you get to hand it back, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, at least I'm honest. I mean, but, you know, I'm also privileged to be able to say, oh, I would be a terrible teacher because if I had to teach... I would probably try to convince you I was, I was great. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have to right now. I'm busy with other stuff right now. I'm lucky with other stuff. Um, so, I mean, speaking of other stuff, uh, you have a few book-to-film adaptations currently in the works. Um, I heard recently that you've actually been enjoying the collaboration process more than you thought you would. Um, I think this probably ties back also to my question about adjusting your grip on the ownership of, of your novels and of your stories. Do you find you are more or less protective of your novels when you're working on adaptation projects like the ones currently underway? I haven't yet had an experience of handing the book to a screenwriter and then reading somebody mm. else's adaptation. And I think that would be, you know, a particular experience. If you make the decision to hand something over, you kind of have to detach mm. and, and risk it not being what you would have done, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and there are pieces of that in self-adaptation too, because a good novel or what, you know, might be a good novel doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good screenplay just because you wrote it. Screenwriting is kind of like a whole other planet, really. Mm. Mm. I can't say that screenwriting is like where I feel free, but it is a mode that I think teaches me a lot. And so mm. I pursue it because it's taught me a lot in a very short amount of time. And I think that happens when you do something new, 
You know, there's mm-hmm. a learning curve and you don't know how to identify things at the beginning. You're like, what is this right. that I'm supposed to do? Oh, what if I did it like this? Oh, P.S., a billion people before you figured that out. You could have just like, <laughs> like asked somebody, you know, um, but figuring out for yourself is part of how you kind of like cut it into the stone of your mind. And um there's been a lot of that and also mm. a lot of um, suspending my cynicism about other people's ideas, which is just my natural shitty inclination um, to be like, oh, that idea doesn't sound like my idea. It can't be good. You know, it's just like <laughs> so obnoxious. <laughs> you know, I've had to learn how to put that aside, thank God, um, because I've been so lucky to work with some people who are just brilliant um and you know humbling so i've yeah it's a lot to learn do you think the learning process um has potentially maybe not changed but impacted um your voice as as a writer of novels primarily yeah i think so I mean, I, I've, I'd never thought so much about perspective um, until I started working on screenplays. And it, mm. it really is like a language unto itself. And the way that that translates just sentence to sentence is a new thing. You know, I, I feel like I'm developing a new sensibility. The third person is something that I had never done until Lapvona. I'd written some short stories in the third person, but that was just really fun and, you know, definitely felt related to the cinematic imaginings of a world and its characters. And I feel like, um, you know, where I am right now is not everything has to be a book and not every book has to be a movie. And not every idea has to be anything. So mm. I'm trying to listen really carefully to, you know, when, when I have an idea for something, like n- not presume its form before further investigation. Right. You know, it could just be that I'm supposed to write a limerick, you know, <laughs> and uh, I don't have to get all these other people involved. Um, <laughs> or, you know, it could be an idea that could sustain you know like a tv show or something you know mm-hmm. not yet i don't have none of my ideas are that <laughs> like that I, I know when my uh, impulse is to write a novel um but i don't yet know um what impulses are a screenplay that i want to write so far it's been like mm-hmm. what about this what about that how about this opportunity and maybe that's just the way movies are, that they're not, they're not so egoic or like um, all about what you want to do. Whereas a novel, I feel no. like just like is absolutely that. Can you just expand and talk just a little bit about the shift has, how the shift has been um, from the very solitary task of writing to more collaborative processes? Well, it coincides with me deciding to do what I never expected to do, which was to get married. (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> yeah, like I married someone, so now it's not. And that just is collaboration. Me. Yeah. Right. Um, so that shift has been. I mean, I'm like I can't lie. Like I think I'm a pretty self-obsessed person. In in that I'm like constantly uncomfortable, like either emotionally, psychologically, or physically. Usually, it's just physically. But that makes me um, have some hesitation about allowing someone else's consciousness in. Um, because what if I can't pay attention to my pain? You know, it's like the, the like mm. pain is such that it just constantly demands that you think about it, basically. Right. Um, because the moment you stop thinking about it, you're not in pain anymore. I mean, I like I, I sort of surrender to the idea of not living in complete isolation anymore. And lately, I've had this thought that surprises me too, which is like, I can never. Yeah, I guess I'll just never go back to that place. You know, like I just went to Sicily for the first time, and um, I can't remember what it was. It was like, oh. My husband, Luke, um, who's also my screenwriting co-writer on a lot of projects, mm -hmm. we were renting a car and it was like way more expensive than we thought it was going to be for like just like some piece of shit car. <laughs> but we had no other way of getting to where we needed to go. And I said something like, let's just do it. Like we're never coming back to Sicily again. <laughs> Because I'm just assuming I'll be dead before I get a chance to go back, you know? <laughs> and so I feel similar when it comes to collaboration. <laughs> I'm like, what's the big deal? Like, I'll probably be dead soon anyway. <laughs> it's my only chance. I'll never have to chance. do this again. Yeah, I'll, uh. never, I'll never have to do it again. Probably no one will ever want to do it again with me. Um... Let's go for it. But it turns out, like, I, I actually really, there, there are certain people that I truly love and, you know, would not want to say that about, hope, hopefully <laughs> I'll go back to Sicily one day. All right, Otessa, that is all the time I'm going to take from you today. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us here at Weird Era. Um, this has been such a joy. <laughs> Likewise. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. Thank you again, and thank you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>